Our reading for today is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Listen now to the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. morning. Hmm? Uh, just a reminder before I begin, um, we started the morning Bible study workshop, 945 uh, in that room uh, with a really big turnout today, so uh, if you have time, please come and um, do some Bible study together and learn together. Um, it was really a, a good time of learning today, so uh, I hope uh, if you weren't able to make it today, um, please come next week or in the weeks to come. All right, uh, as we do uh, every week, we are going through the New City Catechism, and we are now actually, believe it or not, at the end of the second section, and next week we'll begin the third and final section. So this will be the last chance to review the second section together. So let's begin with question 20. Together, who is the Redeemer? What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? What else does Christ's death redeem? Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? How can we be saved? What is faith in Jesus Christ? What do we believe by true faith? What do justification and sanctification mean? Justification means our declared righteousness before God. Sanctification means our gradual 
All right, so uh, today we're actually going to skip question number 33, which is, should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? Answer, no. Everything necessary for salvation is found in Christ. Um, Because we've been talking about justification by faith um, so often, um, and this is going to be covered in the next question as well, so we're going to just skip it and do question 34 today. Question 34, since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? And the full answer is yes, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. Uh, And the answer we're going to learn together, memorize together, is yes, to show love and gratitude to God, and that others may be won to Christ. All right, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. And we ask once again in the hearing of your word, help us to understand, and in understanding, help us to obey. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so today's question 34 follows logically from everything we've been talking about, everything that the catechism has been emphasizing. If our salvation is entirely up to God and we can add nothing to it, then what motivation is there for us to do anything? Why should we do good deeds? Why should we, you know, listen to God's word? Why should we pray? Why should we do anything if nothing we do or nothing, you know, nothing, absolutely nothing we do disqualifies us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? If God has done everything for us, justifies us freely by his grace, we are saved, period. Then what motivation is there for us to do any good thing? And and I hope by now, you know, with all that we've been talking about, you see how impossible that kind of thinking is. Last week, uh, for example, we saw how sanctification goes hand in hand with justification. That you can't separate one from the other. Philip Yancey gives this helpful illustration. He asks, what would you think of a man who on his wedding night immediately began to negotiate with his new bride as to how much adultery she'd tolerate from him? A man like that clearly did not understand the vows he had made earlier that day. Right? It doesn't make sense. So the idea that we want to live in a particular way goes with the fact of who we are and of what God has done. It's like you're, you're already in the band. You're on the team. You're not trying to get in. You're in. So now because you're in it, don't you want to, you know, be good in it? Like, you want to be a part of that. And so you want to practice. You want to, you know, do the best you can because you are already a part of that group. And, and that's what the good works is getting at here. We are saved by faith and faith alone. And through the Bible, we see that clearly and repeatedly. We are saved by grace alone, not by works and not by anything else. But because of that, because we've been made alive in Christ, we now have to live, we want to now live in a particular way. And that's what good works are all about. And so in 
Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has begun to teach uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount by telling his disciples that they are blessed. They are poor in spirit, but they are blessed. They mourn, but they are blessed. They are persecuted, but they are blessed. He has told them, you are blessed. This is who you are. Regardless of the circumstances around you, you are blessed. And then he begins to tell them, now, what difference is that going to make in their daily living? And he gives us these two metaphors for discipleship of how we are to live. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. First, salt. Salt, as you know, uh, has many, many uses. And it's unclear which of those particular traits that Jesus is talking about here. Then, as now, salt is used for flavoring, for preservation. It was used also to ward off evil spirits as fertilizer, as medicine, as disinfectant. It was seen as a sign of purity because it was a combination of the sun and the sea. It was used as a symbol of joy. Sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, we see babies were rubbed with salt as a sign of just the joy. And it was a measure of wealth throughout most of human history. And in the Old Testament, salt is even used to symbolize God's eternal promise. Numbers 18.19 says, All the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. God's promises are likened to a covenant of salt. I know that we live in a world today where salt is so common and, um, you know, uh, we have to eat a low-sodium diet now, so salt is kind of the enemy. Um, But for most of human history, salt was a prized, a prized commodity. Uh, Mark Kurlansky uh, is one of my favorite writers. He has this great book about the history of salt, Uh, in which he points out that up until about 100 years ago, salt was one of the most sought-after commodities. And you can actually write entire histories of countries and of the world by writing a history of salt. For example, uh, in this country, right uh, through up until about the Civil War, you could write a history of the Americas as a history of salt. The history of China, too, you could write about Um, the kind of uh, debates and conversations that they had about the nature of salt and whether it should be taxed and how much of it should be taxed. And um, the salt tax helped to pay for the Great Wall of China, for example. Um, You might remember Gandhi's, that that image of Gandhi by the sea, remember? He, um, I think it was when he was about 60 years old, he he marched for for like a month with people, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people joining him to, to the sea. And when he got to the sea, he picked up some salt from the sea, and that was an act of defiance against the, the British salt tax that led to, you know, down the road to, to independence. So, so, again, for us, you know, salt is just a thing that you, you know, sprinkle a little bit on, on your food, but for most of human history, it was a vital, vital commodity. You, you couldn't go to war until you had enough salt 
to preserve the food that you would need for, you know, for long sieges and things like that. Now, our, our language preserves some of the importance of salt. Uh, you know, we still have the idiom, you know, uh, he's not worth his salt. I don't know if you've heard that before. Um, words like salami, uh, salad, uh, come from the word uh, salt. Uh, the word salary comes from salt because uh, sometimes that's what soldiers were paid. And in fact, the word soldier comes from uh, the, the French sold, which is from the Latin sol, which again is from salt. Um, and uh, the Romans for a time even described a man in love as being in a state of salt. I mean, that, that's how important salt is. Now, Jesus assumes people know the importance and value of salt, so he doesn't really do what I just did, and just mentions one negative aspect of salt, that if salt loses its taste, if salt loses its saltiness, or literally, he says, if salt becomes moronic or foolish, it is worthless. That's a really interesting word choice that he makes about salt, and uh, many scholars think that Jesus is making a pun here. It's kind of a dad joke. In Aramaic, salt is tabel, and foolishness is tapol, right? So you can go from tabel to tapel if salt loses it. See, it's a, it's a dad joke. Um, if you are a disciple and you no longer have this saltiness, this quality, then, then it's absolutely worthless, and you are tossed out, you are cast out. And, and again, that language, that cast out, you know, it's, it reminds us of Jesus' later parables when he talks about being cast out from the presence of God, right? If, if you are not a disciple, if you are not salty, then, then you're going to be cast out. And it has that kind of echo uh, for us. Uh, one of the discussions, maybe a foolish discussion that scholars continue to have, is whether or not what Jesus said is actually uh, scientifically true, right? Can salt actually lose its quality of saltiness. Uh, some have argued that salt is a very stable compound and that it really you can't, it cannot become unsalt. Um, but others point out that the salt that Jesus is probably talking about is a, a, uh, a salt from uh, Dead Sea with impurities and that it could actually lose some of its saltiness when the sodium chloride, I guess, evaporates and you're left with just the impurities of whatever that salt was uh, made out of. Um, so people would, at least by their experience, might have experienced you know, having salt losing its saltiness. Uh, others argue, I think more convincingly, that Jesus is referring here to the practice of using salt as a kind of uh, catalytic agent for making these uh, fire bricks. Right? They, they would, remember in, in the Middle East, wood's not plentiful, so when they, to have fire, they would get like um, dung, animal dung, and they would put salt in it, and they would use the salt in the dung as a way to help start the fire. And after a while, the, the salt would lose its uh, catalytic powers, and then they would just toss out the bricks. And so maybe he's uh, referring to that. Um, whatever the case, I hope it's clear, Jesus is not giving here a chemistry lesson. He's not talking about chemistry. He's simply pointing out the importance and the value of salt and its characteristics, and its function of what it is, okay? Second, he says, you are the light of the world. We know from the very beginning how important light is. Genesis 1 through the very first thing God makes, the very first word that God speaks is light. Let there be light. 
And the writers of the Old Testament regularly associate God and light. Psalm 18, 28. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And then in John 1, 5, we read this very simple statement. God is light. God is light. Matthew 4, 16 then transfers God is light to Jesus. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. That's Jesus. And he himself declares twice in John 8 and 9, I am the light of the world. God is light. Jesus is light. So it should not surprise us then that Jesus tells his disciples to be the light of the world. John 12, 26, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. And Paul echoes this idea in Ephesians 5, For once you were darkness, you were, but now in the Lord you are light. You are light. Live as children of light. Live as children of light. And so all this language is telling us to live in a particular way. And also, I think, it's challenging Rome. Because Rome said, we are the light to the world. And Jesus says, no, no. God is light. God is the light. I am the light of the world. And you are the light of the world. And you have to live as the light of the world. The way you live demonstrates light, not the empire. And then he gives uh, this idea because, you know, again, like salt, for us, light is so plentiful. It's, it's so cheap despite your complaints about electricity bills. Uh, we, we forget how valuable light is, right? And how dark darkness can be without light. And so, again, Jesus, like with salt, he doesn't explain about light so much, only makes this obvious observation what people would know. You know, you don't light a lamp and then put, you know, something to cover it. You, nobody does that. When you, when you light a light, you put it on a lampstand so, so it shines. I mean, that's the whole point. And then he makes this application. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? That's the application. Be the salt of the earth be the light of the world, so that others may see and give glory to God. Now, what does that mean? First, Jesus says, notice here, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, in English, I've talked about this a number of times, whenever the word you appears, we don't know if it's a singular you or if it's a plural you, like all of you. Um, this is one of the reasons that um, the King James version of the Bible, even though you know it's got all some archaic language, the nice thing about the King James and the Old English is that they made the distinction between the singular and the plural you. Thee and thou is the singular form of you, and you is the plural. So in the King James, it'll say ye are the light of the world. So you know when it says, ye are the light of the world, ye are the salt of the earth, you know that the ye means you all. Right? Are you with me here? 
You know, I, I keep thinking, like, someone ought to write, like, a, um, a southern accent version of the Bible so that all the plural use would be y'all. Because, you know, when you read the Bible and you recognize that the yous, most of the time, are the plural you, it's talking about you all together. It's not saying, you know, Jenny, you, you, be the light of the world. It's saying you, the disciples, the church, together, y'all, together, be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's a big difference. Yes, of course, we are called to personal and individual sanctification and holiness and so on. But what Jesus is getting here is you all, y'all, be the salt and light together. We do the good works together. It's the entire church, the community of faith, and its good work together that testifies and witnesses to the glory of God. 1 Peter 2.12 commands us, keep your conduct, keep your, your all's conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So again, we have this idea of we have to do these good works together. It's our shared witness in the one body of Christ that will lead others to give glory to God. Okay? Secondly, Jesus says, you all are. Notice he does not say you will become the salt of the earth. He does not say try to be the light of the world. He does not promise in some distant future future, you will become salt and light. Nor does he say, you know, hopefully, maybe you guys might become, if you work really hard, become salt and light. Salt does not think to itself somehow, like, I've got to be saltier. Right? Or light, like, I've got to shine. It, it, it simply is. You are. You already are salt and light. That is your condition. That is your status. It's not something you're going to become. You're not going to become saltier. You are salt, period. Now, this is our paradoxical ethical imperative that we become what we already are. We become what we already are. We live into the truth that already is. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other belief system teaches what we have to do, what we ought to do, what we should do in order to appease God or please God or reach a higher level of you know, being or something like that, right? Do this and then you will be this, right? But Jesus says, no, you already are. Good works for everyone else falls under justification. This is how you get justified. This is how you become right. This is how you become a good person. But the Bible says, Jesus says, no, you already are. You're already blessed. You're already salt. You're already light. Blessing always before the command to be a blessing. What God has already done for us before what we have to do for God. The gift to us, always before the work that we have to do. Always. Our work is always only a response to the work that God has already done for us. We work because God works. God creates, God saves, God loves. God's actions for us are a gift to us, to benefit us. And God declares his work good because it benefits 
us. They're good gifts for us. And, and that's what we do. That's why we do good works. In other words, you know, we, we are not God's employees trying to earn a salary or to earn merits or points for salvation. Instead, it's, it's, we have this conviction that we are already saved and that God is working in us and through us so that in our common work together as the church, our work will benefit others, will be a gift to others. That's our task. Our vocation, our calling, our good works, it's not some merit that we earn for ourselves, but it is a gift for others. You all are salt. You all are light for the world. For the world. For the whole earth. Not just, you know, Galilee, not just for our church, not just for ourselves, but for the whole world. So, who we are, our identity, who we are in Christ, that being salt and being light, that is what drives our mission for the world. We are driven to do good works because of who we are, not to become something that you know, we have to be. And so this is what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be salt and light. Because of who we are in Christ, we do these good works. And, and this is a very important shift that Jesus makes in the way people had to think about life. Because during Jesus' day, it was the law that was seen as the salt for Israel. The religious authorities, the rabbis, were sometimes referred to as the lights of Israel. And Jerusalem was the city on the hill or the mountain. Right? So all these words, all these ideas that were circulating, Jesus says, all of that... The law as the salt, the teachers as the light, Jerusalem, the city on a hill that brings light, all of that, he brings all of that to himself. He brings all of that to himself. He recenters everything to himself. And he calls us to be the same. So when he says this, when he says you are to be salt and light, He's calling us to be salt and light in the way that he was salt and light. Jesus said he came to glorify the Father. And I think that's something that, you know, people read this and think it's kind of a, sometimes they think it's like a pep talk, you know, like, be salt, be light, really shine, like, you know, show off your Christianity, show them how great you are. And and that's precisely what salt and light do not do. They do not draw attention to themselves. In fact, you know, the only time you ever notice salt or the only time you really notice light is when it's not doing its job. When you're eating food, let's say you're having a a great piece of steak, you never think to yourself, wow, this is a really great piece of salt. Like the salt is so good. Nobody ever does that. The only time you even think about the salt is, oh man, there's too much salt. This ruined this meat. Or, oh man, we need more salt. It's not flavored right. That's the only time you think about salt. When it's not doing its job. Same thing with light. You know, you're not reading a book and you're going, wow, the light in here is really, really great. You only complain about light if it's, if it's too dark. Or, you know, when, when the, someone's coming at you with their high beam on and you can't see because the light's too bright. 
right? But if the light is doing what it's supposed to do, you never think about it. You never think about it. There's a certain humility about being salt and light to the world. They make others flavorful and visible. Salt's not saying, look at me, look how tasty I am. If salt is doing its job, it makes the food around it more flavorful, more pleasurable. Same with light. So, so our good works are not about these um, you know, ostentatious displays of wealth and power to say, look at what we can do. That, that's not what it's about. They're, they're characterized by, by modesty, by mercy and compassion. Even in the matters of spiritual disciplines, right? Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, when you fast, when you give charity, when you do all these you know, spiritual activities... What does he say? He doesn't say, like, show off and let everybody know what you're doing. No, he says, pray in secret, and God will reward you in secret. When you, you know, give charity, just do it quietly. You don't have to boast about it. When you fast, you know, don't look like, you know, oh, I'm so hungry. Like, just do it. That's your reward. There there is a kind of, you know, just humbleness about all of this. That's what salt and light are to do. Your works of blessing come from a position of humility. Because Jesus says, you know, the poor, the hungry, those who mourn, the persecuted, you are the salt and the light. It's not, you know, the, the, the Romans, you know, in, in positions of power that are the light and salt. It's no, it's you who are suffering. You who are the, you know, nothing right now. You are the salt. You are the light. It's not about status. It's about function. It's about what we're supposed to do. Right? Because the status part of it, that's done. Our position's been forever changed. Christ has died on the cross. That's done. You are saved. There's nothing you can do to change that fact. That's done. Because of that now, what do we do? What's our function? Be salt, be light. For others, so that they can give glory to God. Someone once asked uh, Eugene Peterson uh, what he would say if he were writing what he knew would be his last sermon. And Peterson said this. He said, in my last sermon, I guess I'd want to say, go home and be good to your spouse. Treat your children with respect. Do a good job at work. You know, when I read that, I thought, wow, that's, like, wouldn't you want to say something, something else? <laughs> no, you know, there, there's nothing revolutionary about that. There's nothing exciting about that. But that's precisely what salt and light does. And that's our task, I think, as, as a community of faith, to live in such a way together, to do good works. We've got to do good works. We've got to do it. But we do it in such a way that others are blessed and it brings glory to God. Let me close with this. Um, the Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan, that still doesn't sound right to me. Um, but the Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan, uh, he was interviewed back in 1991 for Rolling Stones magazine on the occasion of his 50th birthday. So, um, and the interviewer asked him this question. 
Are you happier these days than 20 years earlier? Are you happier? And this is, this is what Dylan said. He said, oh man, I've never even thought about that. Happiness is not on my list of priorities. I just deal with day-to-day things. If I'm happy, I'm happy. And if I'm not, I don't know the difference. You know, these are yuppie words, happiness and unhappiness. Um, do you guys know what a yuppie is? <laughs> Ask your parents. Okay. Um, it's not happiness or unhappiness. It's either blessed or unblessed. As the Bible says, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now that must be a happy man. And then he says this, knowing that you are the person you were put on this earth to be, that's much more important than just being happy. Knowing that you are the person you were put on this earth to be, that's much more important than being just happy. Do you know what that is? That's to be salt. That's to be light. That's to be blessed. God has blessed you, us, so that we can be salt and light for the world. Let's pray together. God, we, we're, we uh, help us never to take for granted what you have done for us on the cross. And God, just with the freedom and joy that that makes possible, help us now, God, to live our life together as this body of Christ to do good works to give of ourselves, to make sacrifices of our time, talent, treasures, to bring your blessing to other people so that they can see not not what nice people we are, but to see that you working through us, that they might see your glory, they might see your love, they might experience your power and presence. God, help us to be like salt and like light to make possible for others to see your goodness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Lord's table.